well, it already died once, so we don't want to disrespect it by killing it a second time. <laughs> Welcome to Tampa's Table, a culinary journey. I'm Jeff Houck. I'm Vice President of Marketing for the 1905 Family of Restaurants. Today, we're going to be talking about omakase, uh, a style of Japanese dining that has taken off in Tampa, and one of its best practitioners and an award-winning practitioner is Eric Freilich. Welcome. Hey, thanks, so, Jeff. So, Eric, I know you because I started going to your restaurant, Noble Rice, on Platt Street, gosh, I want to say seven or eight years ago, and I'd never heard of uh, Izakaya, which is sort of like a Japanese pub-style restaurant. Yes, sir. And my friend David Williams, who is a, a graphic designer who loves anime and all things Japanese and cultural Japanese, took me there and baptized me. And um, it's not an overstatement to say uh, my life changed because I got to I got to taste what I think were the most authentic Japanese flavors that I had had there. And I'm wondering, how did Noble Rice get started and why in Tampa? Oh, geez. So this is a, one of the most popular questions I get asked yeah. pretty much every night. So long story short, um, grew up in, in upstate New York, moved to New York City for about 15 years, right. went to Japan for five years, trained over there. When I came back from Japan, met Adriana, my wife. Uh, she grew up in Tampa, so I think she was eight years old when mm -hmm. she moved here. Um, she said, we're going to Tampa. I said, all right. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I'm coming too. Follow the woman. That's right. Yes. So uh, we got married. After we got married, we realized all the food that we loved in New York in Japan wasn't here in Tampa. So we went out on a limb and opened up Noble Rice. You know, it wasn't like you opened it up on South Howard or at International Plaza or even now. And, you know, what people think of now is sort of a, a nest of restaurants in Water Street, although we'll talk about that later. Um, you opened up in the Hyde Park neighborhood, and I'm yeah. wondering why you picked that place. It's just serendipitous. It was a uh, creative loafing, not mm -hmm. creative loafing, I'm sorry, a Craigslist ad that we uh, that we saw. And I met our current landlord, Michael Pallori, right. and he's been fantastic ever since we've we've rented that space and it just worked out. So for people who aren't aware of, we're gonna work through a couple terms here. For an izakaya, um, what kind of style is that? If you were to go to Japan, what would that look like? It's more relaxed and laid back. It's usually a mom and pop, right? They live in the in the house mm -hmm. above above the uh, the izakaya, that's where they live. And then below is where you kind of have like a neighborhood joint, like a place to go and drink and to have some small plates. And tell me what kind of menu you had when you debuted. When we first opened up, we were always ingredient focused. Um, we had some sushi rolls, mm -hmm. nigiri, sashimi, a few rolls, uh, and then some izakaya plates that were kind of our interpretation of kind of Japanese comfort food. Right. So it's a place that, that Japanese people would go to as like a neighborhood hangout, a neighborhood exactly. restaurant. Yep. Um, you know, it seems very formal because of, you know, anytime you're not eating with a fork and a knife, it's a, it's a different experience for a lot of Americans. <laughs> um, Very true. You know, that's the Jerry Seinfeld joke about, you know, they've seen the fork, you know, they're still using the, the chopsticks, but there was something intrinsic about it that when you have the right spoon for the ramen or the udon, or the right chopsticks that enhance the experience, I, it's a very visceral thing. I, I felt like when I first uh, dined there that I felt like I was in a very special place because you cared enough to to uh, source your ingredients. I mean, you weren't just pulling stuff out of, you know, chef's warehouse or anything like yeah. that. Well, and tell me about the sourcing of your of your seafood and your ingredients, because it's not like it's it was that prevalent back then. 
So living in Japan gave me a kind of an idea of what good quality ingredients were. Mm -hmm. And I knew when I came back to the States, if I was getting a good meal somewhere or if I was getting kind of a, a cop out, right? right? So when we opened up Noble Rice, we really worked with the vendors that were local and some of them international on bringing in the very best quality ingredients we could. That meant that our menu might be a little bit smaller, might be a touch more expensive, right. but obviously good groceries make everything good, you know, better. Better ingredients make yeah. a better experience. Yeah. Um, so Noble Rice has now moved to the channel side area. Um, and, and, you know, that is not a place that has traditionally been thought of as a place for you, for say your style of restaurant. How did it change when it moved to that area? Oh my goodness. The, the whole process took about two and a half years. Really? So we had a lot of time to kind of adjust right. into that, the, that new area, but it's been fantastic since mm -hmm. we've gone in. It really, really has. It fits better, I think, than than people expect maybe because first of all, there's so much activity now, but there are little mini hangouts within that area now that it doesn't stand out on its own as an island anymore. It's actually part of a whole vibe there, I think. Yeah. Um, so tell me what kind of, of, uh, of customer appreciates uh, a Noble Rice. So I think for the first four or five years that we had Noble Rice open, uh, there was a little education period mm -hmm. uh, with the customer base. We didn't have spicy mayo. We didn't do the traditional edamame and miso soup because we wanted to break those stereotypes. We wanted you to come in and, and experience Japanese food the way we thought it should be experienced without sure. having that preconceived notion. So um, when we moved to Channel Side, we kind of had this dual concept going on inside of Noble Rice, which was we had an omakase that was like $250. And then we had somebody having a $16 ramen in shorts and a tank top and flip-flops next to that experience. So my wife and I knew that we wanted to separate the, those two concepts sure. from each other. Sure. So that you could have one exclusive eight-seat-only omakase place, which is now Koya, and then the more, I would say, approachable meal or concept, which is Noble Rice and Channel Side. So you mentioned it, the restaurant Koya. Um, basically went in where Noble Rice used to be on Platt Street. Uh, tell me about how that came to be. What was the inspiration for wanting to do that? Was it the response you got to the omakase in Noble? Yeah. Or? So 2017, a year after we opened up, we introduced a uni omakase, which quickly turned into a 10-course omakase. And then and we had uni a is, for people who don't know, sea urchin. Sea urchin. The very best ingredient Yes, in the world. indeed. <laughs> I've seen your sea urchin collection, and I've thought about shoplifting, but I didn't do it. Thank um, you. You source so incredibly well, and, so, and the sea urchin is just so clean. Yes. Um, yeah. So I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go yeah, ahead. No. So uh, we knew that we had 75% of our business sales coming from the omakase, so we wanted to separate the two concepts. So what happened is we opened Koya in July 2020 mm -hmm. after the remodel. It's uh, been sold out every night since we've opened up. And then- uh, And how many seats? Eight seats. Eight seats. Eight seats. Very rare. Very, very Five rare. Five nights a week, seven nights a Four week? Four nights a Four week. Four nights a week. Four nights a week. We just started doing a second seating on Friday and Saturday. Why did you just start doing a second seating? Well, I have a couple extra employees now, which helps out. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be just three of us. It used to be my wife, uh, our chef Howard, uh, Howard Lopez, and myself. And now we have two other uh, young gentlemen that were incredible talents, mm -hmm. sushi chefs at, at Noble Rice. And we actually brought back one of our servers from former Noble Rice to Koya. So, so we talked about what uh, an izakaya is. Tell me about the philosophy of omakase, because I, I think that that's 
part of a bigger trend, but we'll talk about that in a second. Define for people who aren't familiar what omakase is. So omakase just basically translates to chef, I leave it up to you. So you're getting a meal created by the chef. It doesn't have to be all sushi. It could be kaiseki style. It's basically the world's oldest tasting menu where you would go to the restaurant, you'd say to the chef, omakase, please. And does that put pressure on the chef? No, I don't think so. Do they have already something in mind? I would imagine. Yeah. It's kind of like a- or I, let, me, let, me, let me rephrase. When someone wants omakase from you, where do you start in terms of crafting their experience? Because it has a, I, I never really understood it until I dined with you that there is sort of a narrative that goes through. You don't want to sure. start out with a big flavor at the beginning and then bomb the, the palate for the rest of it. <laughs> when you're thinking about creating a multi-course omakase, what do you, what do you start? Where do you So we create? like to start with like a, a, a couple small bites first. We call them like our handshake courses. It's mm -hmm. like coming in, it's like you get to feel how firm the handshake is or isn't, and then it kind of sets the tone for the rest of the night. So we start with that, and then we'll go into like sashimi or some nigiri, and then from there we'll go into a shun portion, which is kind of like the very best peak ingredients of the season at the moment and our interpretation of them. And then how do you finish? We finish always with a dessert. What dessert? <laughs> our desserts are a little bit... Uh, off the beaten path, we started out with a foie gras chocolate bar years ago uh, that had toasted coconut curry in it. Uh, then we did a uni macaroon with a yuzu ice cream, toasted cardamom, caviar, lemon zest on it. Uh, our new one right now is a banana crisp with a chocolate wafer that's topped with Ocetra caviar. If I start to cry a little bit, just <laughs> give me a second. I'll collect myself. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about having dined at your restaurants to know how personal everything is. It feels like it is a curated experience. It's not just a menu. We're not just tr trying to do a concept. It feels like very hand-selected. Um, and that's, I mean, that's uh, the philosophy of omakase is it comes from the chef. This is your expression. So how do you keep it fresh for yourself? I think there's inspiration everywhere. Um, mainly Where do you go to get inspired? The biggest thing for me is I have a hard time sleeping. So I'm constantly up at night thinking about food and thinking about new variations and what we can do with them. Uh, I'm also really fortunate to be able to talk to our buyer in Toyosu Market in Japan on a daily basis so I can see pictures of you know what something new is or what's the new hyper-seasonal item that they're able to bring in. And, and you have to rely on that person because it's not like you can walk the aisles and choose no. yourself. Yeah. So how did you establish that relationship? That's a crazy story, Jeff. So oh, it's well, a, <laughs> I'm, I am here for the crazy story. I don't know if you know that or yeah. not. It's a really cool story. So. Um, I had got, kind of gotten uh, in, a, in a tiff with one of the local vendors, and it's a vendor that everybody uses. They use it worldwide. Um, we kind of had a problem with them. I wasn't getting the quality ingredients I wanted. So I started looking online, and I just randomly found a company, sent an email. Literally, a few hours later, I got an email back, and the gentleman said, I was just talking to a friend of mine who lives in Tampa about your restaurant. I'd love to come and meet you. So three days later, he's in my restaurant. Um, He's actually one of the partners uh, in this business that has uh, one of the most famous uh, tuna, I guess they, they call him the tuna king or tuna god of to Toyosu Market, um, Yamayuki-san is his partner. So it's just unbelievable All roads that lead to Tampa. <laughs> yeah, somehow. Well, it's a crossroads. It's somehow. like anywhere else, you know? Yeah. So when you have this beautiful product in front of you, um, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize how much respect chefs want to show that ingredient. Um, when it's when you have this beautiful piece of tuna or whatever you have in front of you that's been provided, it's come a long way. Somebody had to pull it out of the ocean. That's right. How do you approach it in a respectful way? Well, it already died once. 
So we don't want to disrespect it by killing it a second time. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, um, how you handle ingredients is very important, especially when it comes to fish. Right. Uh, I give you one popular misconception, which is the fish has to be extreme, extremely fresh. Like it just caught off the boat. And that's, that's a total lie. If you caught a tuna off a boat and started cutting it up to have sushi or sashimi with it, it's going to be very firm, crunchy. It's not going to have very much flavor at all. So it needs time to rest, relax. to relax, exactly. Yeah. So we have like about a six to nine day period where we let the, the tuna relax and let the water content kind of evaporate as much as it can, kind of mm -hmm. like a good aged steak would be. And then you're left with more umami flavor. Do you have a favorite ingredient that you use? Is it the uni? I love uni. It's, Why it's, is the uni so good? <laughs> I don't know. It's, I need answers. Yeah, it's ridiculously expensive. So, so it, it's just so clean. Mm -hmm. I, I, will, I will be honest. The first time I heard about uni was through Anthony Bourdain. I'm watching him go nuts in Japan over uni. So I tried it. I'm like, why has nobody ever told me about this? But it's such a, just a clean, beautiful flavor. Yes. What does it do for your dish? It's an enhancement for sure. And even on its own, it's a spectacular ingredient. So like adding it to our dessert with a, a yuzu or a citrus-based ice cream and then some caviar that's to gild the lily. So yeah, it's, a, it's one of those ingredients that's exquisite on its own, but also can be playful with others. So I know you have two seatings at Koya. Um, how does the reservation system work? So the 15th of every month, we open the reservations up at 10 a.m. Uh, we sell out pretty quickly. So if you have a date in mind, it's good to be kind of open with that date um, and then have a party size. Um, so yeah. Anything under eight? Anything under eight. Yes. We, there's, a, there's a secret ninth seat that people don't know about. So we're allowing uh, odd parties to be able to book. So parties oh. of one, three, and five. So we have a lot of single di uh, solo diners that want to to join so we've kind of allowed this ninth seat in there but you can't book all night it's interesting i i the, you see a lot of people solo dining now in a way that you yeah. didn't used to and a lot of them like to eat at the bar like at the columbia they'll eat at the bar the bar doesn't have any stigma anymore and you have a relationship with the bartender just like you would with the, the sushi chef yeah so um I'm, I'm glad to hear you did that that's awesome so you open koya now you're doing two seatings um what indication do you take uh, from that about, from a macro standpoint, where Tampa is uh, in its culinary life? Is it Does it show maturation? Does it show excitement? What does it say about Tampa when you can fill in a, um, an omakase uh, setup twice a night? I think it says a lot that we grew up especially as a city as a whole. Right. I think there's there's definitely been an education period, but you see a lot of people traveling now. A lot of people are going to go to Miami. They're going to be in New York. They're going to go to LA. And then with social media, you're going to see what everybody else is eating all around the world. Right. So you already have kind of this interest there, right? So it, do, it does say a lot. We are an eight-seat restaurant, so I don't want to brag too much. <laughs> it's not well, hard to fill eight uh, seats. <laughs> you're not filling it at uh, $10 a person, no. let's be true. Uh, but the bottom line is, is you're providing a unique experience yeah. that is, um, you know, I, I joke about it, but food is the new souvenir. And you go to that on that specific night, only eight people had that experience. You can't, I mean, it's like, it's like how many people have stood on the moon? I don't want to compare it, but at the same time, it's that specialized in that moment in time. The, the, the other thing I want to talk about is, is sort of the ground that was broken. Cause it's not like there's an enormous, um, population of Japanese in Tampa. I mean, there's a, a broad base of, of Asian, uh, population that's here for whether it's, um, USF or or industry or whatever, but your your customers by and large are Anglo, I would think. 
Yeah, we have a good a good mix of uh, ages, demographic right. that comes in. Like I said, I, I feel like with social media being as prevalent as it is now, people are seeing what everybody is having to eat from across the entire globe. And it's like, well, I want to try that too. And they also are thinking about where their food comes from. And they like to know that the people that are are serving them are serving have thought about where that source is um do you get questions about where's this from or of course what do you what kind of questions do you get oh yeah exactly what you just asked me yeah. like where how do you get this where did this come from and it's like well we go through every course and we try to explain every kind of detail right. of what the what you're experiencing where the fish came from exactly how it's been prepared uh, i think we've always been authentic uh, and we've always had this integrity about our ingredients. Sure. We've, we've never let that slip. And um, I'm, I'm proud of that. The other thing that I'm seeing is that now you might have a barbecue place, but you might play with Asian ingredients or Japanese ingredients. Uh, I remember going to um, Haven one time and I was like, what is that? And they're like, it's Kewpie Mayo. I go, what's Kewpie Mayo? And now it's in Publix and you can, you know, yeah. it's very prevalent. And so people are getting very educated very fast, but they're also seeing a lot of the products that used to be sort of either unknown or exotic to them that they can play with at home or, you know, that, that when they go to a restaurant, they go, oh, I know what that is. Yeah. So that does a lot of your work for you, I would think. It's helpful. Yeah. I mean, uh, Japanese items in a, everybody's pantry is, I think that's a beautiful thing. Well, and you know, even the grocery stores now have, you know, grab and go sushi. Yeah. And I remember that the first time I ever saw that was 35 years ago. I was living in Alaska and the grocery store up there had sushi to go. And we were like, what the what, yeah. you know? And then we came home and we didn't have that until the longest time. And then obviously public started doing it. I'm like, okay, we're, I see where this is going. Um, what is the, the one dish that is sort of your, cornerstone i can never take it off at either noble or koya like a particular dish or a yeah, particular is there, ingredient is there is there your purple rain is there i have to i have to play this song on the <laughs> right. so we we have a couple at the moment um that have been on the menu probably for about a year and a half to two years at koya uh we have a a macaroon so we do like a charcoal activated or activated charcoal macaroon that has a smoked salmon has a horseradish uh cream there's a little bit of apple and then there's some pickled red onion but it's this one magical bite it's one of our handshake courses to welcome you into the meal and when people take a bite of that what do you see oh yeah there's always just like the, the eyes roll back moment or the you get the little sho the shoulder, shoulder shimmy yeah <laughs> that's you know you've hit it yeah um so how often do you take time to invent new courses or new dishes every week if Tell I me can. about that process. Sometimes it comes from like, I'll have an idea and then I'll implement it and it doesn't work out the way I thought it should work out. And then I'll mm -hmm. sit back and I'll think about it and I'll go back at it the next day right. and maybe a week later. But then finally there's a version of that dish that I'm really happy with that we can put on the menu. And then in-house, is it like we have a tasting or how do you, what, what is the process of getting it on the menu? What's funny for me is I don't taste a lot of my food. <laughs> right away uh, i usually let the staff taste it and get the feedback from them why do you do it that way i don't know it's one of those weird things it's because they take just teach my you way. In culinary school <laughs> make sure you taste your dish. everything yes. is it too salty is it yeah. too this too that that's an interesting approach what do you think that does for you i don't i guess i just it's how my mind works sure and i'm very confident and it's it's worked it's out crowdsourcing so. is what yeah. it is crowdsourcing I like yeah that. um so when you go home at night i asked this one time of Roy Yamaguchi, who I think paved a lot of road for people in terms of their acceptance of, of uh, Pacific cuisine. 
Um, I asked him one time, what do you, what do you eat when you go home? And he goes, it's a lot of containers and stuff like that from brought from the restaurant. And, uh, he goes, actually, I named a band that I was in after what I eat at night. And I go, what's that? And he goes, the band's name was tiny noodles under a chair. I was the drummer. And I was like, okay. Did not expect that answer. Uh, people have this fantasy about what the chefs and bartenders, uh, do when they're at, at home and what they eat and what they drink. Tell me about what you do when you're unwinding. So, uh, yeah, everybody thinks there's something glamorous right. happening, and it's usually not that way. So there's been many nights with the tiny noodles or a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese, for sure, <laughs> hitting the drive through on the way home. Uh, my wife and I now, they were a little bit older, trying to be more health conscious. Yeah. So we kind of more on a, a carnivore diet at the moment. So we're just eating a lot of meat and dairy, but... Uh, other than that. You got a cow in the living room that just waits <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. Okay. There's not, you don't have a giant tuna waiting for you at home or no. anything like that. Yeah. It's not like you're going to sous vide breakfast or anything like you just yeah. like, you got to comfort yourself, yeah. I think. So Adriana, tell me about her role in the restaurant and you two as a team, because I know in dining there, it's very symbiotic and she's so wonderful about providing a um you know the hospitality side she's of it. absolutely amazing the restaurant neither of them would work without her 100 percent. Right. um she's the the backbone for sure and i think I've, i pulled her into it unwittingly uh and we had some moments where some staff went missing and it happens in every restaurant sure. but we had to step up together as a team to make things work and if we didn't the restaurant wouldn't be open right so there was a there was a time when she was my right hand so right there on the omakase with me, she's slicing the sashimi, making the nigiris, putting up the chirashi bowls. So yeah, been my, through it all. My parents worked together at my father's business. That's a different dynamic because then, you know, you're at home, you're at work, but it, it also is a comfort to have her there, I would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, she's my best friend. So yeah. working not, with your best friend is not such a bad awesome? deal. Yeah, it is. So when you want to, uh, you know, maybe say start, uh, something like Koya, is that your idea? You confer with her. How does that work? Yeah, usually it's me just dumping a whole bunch of, you know, like, hey, let's do this. And she's like, nope, whack. <laughs> After some persistence. We see her so, true yeah, value, yeah, I see. Yeah, for sure. So it's she's a great sounding board, right. especially to say, hey, you're being unreasonable. Step back from the ledge a little bit. So It'll Give you perspective. Yes, Not exactly. a retainer, it's just sort of giving you yeah. the reality of it, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. So the other thing I, I remember is uh, I used to lose my mind because you had a market at one point right next to where Noble was, right around the corner in that same building. And it was um, the some of the best sandwiches I've had in Tampa. And Tampa Tampa's a sandwich town. But um, along comes this word Michelin. And you're one of the first Michelin-starred restaurants in Tampa. Where were you when you found out the news? And... <laughs> What was your reaction? <laughs> so when we heard Michelin was going to come to, to Florida, I was like, yeah, it's just going to be the guide, right? They're just going to have the recommended restaurants. There's no way anybody's getting a star. So yeah. I just, it was right out of my mind immediately. But customers come in and say, oh, you're going to get a star. It's like, nope, that's it, not how it's going to work. But it actually went down that way. And it's uh, it's been what an amazing journey. Because I know there's yeah. been two rounds of it and Koya got the star. Um, I thought you should have gotten a star for Noble in the first round because it was such a unique and cultivated experience. What's been the reaction since then? Because you were already busy. It wasn't as if oh, yeah. you weren't busy. Um, what has been the experience and are you seeing it drive uh, customers to your restaurant? For sure, it's been huge. It's absolutely been huge. I mean, we were busy before, but this is on another level. It's it's an animal, but it's a, in, a good, in a good way, right. in a very, very good way. And it's, it's definitely shined a spotlight, not only on us, but also on the city 
as a whole. I was going to ask you what you thought yeah. the long-term effects of it would be. Oh, huge, huge. And it, and it should raise the bar for everybody else. So I think iron sharpens iron. The rising tide raises all ships. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's probably a 20-year a, a tail on it, to be honest with you, because it takes time to get concepts going and nurtured and whatnot. But you know, having a magnet of drawing people to town with the possibility of starting something that might earn note of, you know, notice through Michelin is huge, much less international recognition. Mm -hmm. So you, when you're down in Miami and you're, you, you find out that you're getting the star, were you in the audience when they announced it or yes. did you know it beforehand? Or? No, I had. So when they announced they you. They were very tight lipped about all that stuff. You knew, so you, knew you were, you were called to be there. They invited you there. That's a promising thing. Yes. When they announced that you had won. Yeah. Take me through that moment. Well, yeah, that's just like, pop. <laughs> you hear your name called. And we weren't expecting it because uh, they were going kind of alphabetically. And somehow Koya was the first one out of uh, the three the three new stars. Was it three? Or, yeah, three yeah, new three stars. Three new stars from Tampa. For Tampa, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that that was that, that particular round. There were stars in Tampa and not Orlando. And Orlando previously had the stars. And now Tampa's getting them. And it seems like, okay, Whoever is giving the stars or doing the analysis or the or the the visits are now getting around to see what's available. And there's a, a huge amount of talent and a huge amount of great places now. So you think there'll be more? You would think so. You would think so. Yeah, would we think would so. hope so. Yes. Um in, in terms of staying grounded, how do you stay grounded once you're starting to get that kind of recognition? What's the best way to say this? Would my wife and I are homebodies. We're home a lot. I right. pour myself into work. Uh, I'm either at Koya or I'm at Noble Rice. We don't really hang out that much. We don't have a large group of friends that we're partying with. Mm -hmm. um, I think that kind of helps keep us focused on what we're doing. Yeah, it, it helps to be surrounded by people who don't care. Yes. You know, children, <laughs> pets, yeah. you know, things like that. It kind of yeah. keeps you, keeps you level-headed. So you have two recipes in the new edition of Tampa's Table Cookbook. Um, what recipes did you choose and why? All right, so for, for Koya, uh, this is one of the recipes that would be, or an item that's been on the menu for quite a while that's hard to take off. Uh, it's actually, we consider our first dessert course of the night, and it's a scallop. So we have a Hokkaido scallop that's been cooked in vanilla bean and butter, and then it's uh, going to be covered with a uh, white chocolate and yuzu blanc. It's deceptively simple looking dish, but it's a really, really great gateway into the dessert course. And you can't take it off the menu. It's People love it that much. Yes. And what's the second one? Uh, the second one for Noble Rice is our shrimp toast. So that actually came from uh, our previous executive chef, uh, Frank Anderson, as a, a crowd-pleasing hit. Every time we send it out, the eyes roll in the, the shoulders. The shimmy again. Yeah, the shimmy again. What works about it? What's so popular about it? So we, uh, it's shrimp, right? And and toast and, yeah, and toast, love toast. <laughs> but well, it's, it's a, toast i had a i did a story one time about toast i sound it sounds silly but it's such a deep memory for people of the smell and the crunch and the hominess of it um and you know shrimp's just awesome yeah. it's a, it's an unctuous bite it's covered in thai herbs uh we do hoisin and a keeping mayo on it and it's just one of those bites that that hits every level and people can make it at home with yes, the recipe they that they have absolutely awesome yeah we talked about uh, what you eat at home. Um, where do you go for inspiration? What, are there restaurants? I mean, it's not like there's a huge number of omakase places here. Yeah. Where do you draw your inspiration from? So that somebody asked me, where do you go to get sushi? And it's like, I don't because I work in a sushi restaurant. Well, it's not a sushi restaurant, right, but right, I work right. around this stuff right. all the time. So it's like if I was making pizza, I probably wouldn't go out for pizza. So a lot people always ask me, where do you go for Cuban sandwiches? I go, dude. 
don't don't start with me, you know. <laughs> so where do you go? What do you do? What do you see? So I I got a favorite restaurant in town, which is Roca. Uh, Chef Bryce and I have become good friends over the last couple of years. Who just um, won a Michelin star himself? Yeah, well deserved, man. Absolutely well deserved. And hey, for those he's going to be a guest on the show as well. Awesome. So, um, so you go to Roca? Any place else? Uh, locally, there's a few places by home, but they're you know small little sandwich shops. So when you go to a restaurant, though, and I know this from being in the industry. You see it in a different way. Like you're watching the the steps of service. You're watching the utensils yep. or the technique or things like that. Tell me how you break down a restaurant and can you enjoy going out? Absolutely, you can. My wife and I just went out uh, last week and we had a tremendous meal and it was really cool to see their their steps of service. They did everything super well executed from from start to finish. Right. Hospitality, front of house, back of house, all the chefs, terrific. And when you see that, what does that do for you? Well, that's inspiring. It's like, hey, maybe I could step up my game a little bit here or do something, you know, that they're doing that I'm not doing that just kind of, you know, make us a little bit better. So talk to me about the future. What's your uh, what's your next idea? What's the next concept? Well, as you know, we have Kinjo coming, which uh -huh. is going to be Itameshi. That's uh, an Italian-Japanese fusion restaurant. Uh, Itameshi. Itameshi. You schooled me before the podcast <laughs> on how to say omakase and izakaya. <laughs> yes, sir. Did I hit those? Yes, you did. Okay. So this is Itameshi? Itameshi, yeah. Itameshi. I can get that because of eat, and not to break it too far down. I feel like Chris Farley and uh, talking to uh, Paul McCartney, like, remember when you were in the Beatles and you said Itameshi? <laughs> Um, but itameshi means what? It just basically translates to Japanese fusion. Okay. Or, or Italian fusion, I'm sorry. And that's the kind of a wafu style, which wa means Japan, fu is Thank Japanese style food. Thank you for through it. Yes. Wafu. Wafu. So itameshi. Yeah. Wafu is Japanese style, like food. Right. Um, so it's Japanese Italian. And so Japanese it, Italian because? Well, Italian food is one of my favorite foods to eat. Obviously. There you go. That's you, all you need. Yeah. Started you, out- You want to cook the food you want to eat. That's <laughs> true. But where did that come into the, the <clears> narrative? When I lived in Japan, one of my favorite restaurants was an Italian restaurant. It was a Japanese-Italian fusion restaurant. They just did crazy, awesome pastas. What was that, the name of the restaurant? Oh, it was named after a guy. And I think it was, it was it like Luigi's or something no, like no, that? No, 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 no. It was like some kind of trattoria <laughs> or something like that. I, okay. I forgot the name of it. This was in- um, They didn't convert it to a Japanese name or anything. No, okay. they did not. But Eat at Meshi's. That could have been- It no, could no, 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 make sense. I apologize. <laughs> but you love that food so much. Yeah. And and why did you love it there so much? What did they do that was so well, special? It reminded me of home, mm -hmm. right? But also at the same time, it was like their version of what they thought Italian comfort food would be for a Japanese person. So it's like Italian food made with Japanese sensibilities. Interesting. So uh, say spaghetti and meatballs, what would that look like there? Well, you might have something like, um, you could have like a natto pasta, which is fermented soybeans with a little bit of uh, garlic and olive oil. You could have a mentaiko, which is a, a roe tossed in with, with the pasta. Okay. A lot more mushrooms and soy-based and brown butter than you would have a red sauce. So we'll see some of those ingredients possibly Absolutely. at Kinjo. Absolutely. Interesting. So how many seats at Kinjo? I think we're going to start with 16 to 20, somewhere in there. But I heard there's a rumor that it might get bigger, but we'll see. Yeah, I talked to the owner. <laughs> I would say that's what I always do is go to the source. And hopefully by the time you see this, it'll be open. So yes. that'd be great. Yep. And then what do you think the future looks like for Tampa? Um, what's your crystal ball say about what the future looks like culinarily? I think it's, I think it's going to be great. I think we're right on the cusp of doing something great, but it doesn't feel like a plateau right now to me. No, it feels like, okay, we've, we've gotten it started. Here we yeah. go. How many restaurants are currently on the horizon that haven't opened yet? 
opened up yet. So there's a lot. And there's I a lot an more explanation because w the reason that so many are opening all at once is because so many were delayed by COVID, like you were talking about, you know, and and um, and now that they've been on the planning stages, they're ready to go. They're fully formed. It's not like they're still walking. They've been ready to run for a while. So we're seeing a bunch of them. Yes, but, but you think that's a good sign? I think it's a good thing. I think there there's going to be a struggle for finding good help and qualified help because the, the the pool is getting a little bit thinner right now. I think you've talked to a lot of. Local restaurateurs, they're seeing the same thing. So. Yeah. All industries, really, but yep. especially hospitality. Yeah. Um, but it'll it'll figure itself out, I think. I mean, it attracted you to Tampa. <laughs> it sure did. You know? It sure and did. And God knows what's going to attract somebody else to come here, but I would have to think that working at great restaurants would be a magnet yeah. at a certain point. Um, I appreciate you being a guest on the show. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming in and talking. I can't wait for the next time I eat at restaurants and also for Kinja. I, I, I'm really excited about Italian and Japanese because now I'm thinking, okay, I can I can see uh, uni meatballs. Please give me uni meatballs. Will you give me uni meatballs, please? I'll try. It'll only be like a thousand dollars a plate, <laughs> but yes, you know, you understand where I'm getting yeah. at. But uh, but thank you for being a guest. My pleasure, Jeff. And thank you for watching. Uh, please keep your eye out for future episodes of Tampa's Table, a culinary journey. Um, you can find them on YouTube and also anywhere we have podcasts. And keep your eye out for the fall for the new edition of Tampa's Table. Uh, cookbook that will be coming out very, very soon. Thank you very much.